0: Hey guys, Brandon here. We'll get you to the show in just a second. And if you want to listen to That 90s Baseball Pod early and ad-free, make sure to sign up at patreon.com slash that Baseball Pod. Subscribers at any level get the show as soon as it's created, early and ad-free. Now, for our sponsors, we have ePare, which is reasonably priced trendy kitchenware. That's ePare.com promo code 10 T90BP10. So that 90s baseball pod t90 bp with 10 on either side symbol.app that's s-i-m-b-u-l-l.app is the stock market for sports if you use the promo code bender you get a free week of symbol gold hinterland coffee in minnesota is a freshly roasted coffee experience every single week monthly subscriptions get 10 percent off go to hinterlandmn.com Three Star Sports Cards. You can find them online or in person in Bloomington on Lindale Avenue or in Little Canada on Rice Street or threestarsportscards.com. And finally, Humility Chains. Royce Lewis's mom, Cindy, makes stylish, affordable chains and necklaces and bracelets that go, uh, the proceeds go directly to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer. So a portion, again, of those proceeds go to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer cancer more than 20 styles of chains and bracelets are available they're affordable they look great i'm wearing mine right now i highly recommend them it's humility chains on etsy so look up etsy and then search for humility chains and now on to your show Good day, good day. It is that 90s baseball pod coming back at you after a week off with Greg Olson. We've got Greg on the line at G-R-E-G-G-O-L-S-O-N 30 on the Twitter machine. Mr. Olson, how are we today? Good, Brandon. How about yourself? Not too bad. And if people are watching on the video, I have to admit I kind of primped up a little bit because we are welcoming one of the (laughs) best-looking right-handers from the 80s and the 90s. I am absolutely delighted. To bring on Angels Color Man, Mark Gubaza. How are we doing, man?
1: Brandon Ollie, what's going on, fellas? It's, it's great to be up here and uh, talking with you guys this early in the morning, man.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> we got you at 8
2: a.m. I can't uh, tell you how much I uh, appreciate you jumping on with us. And I know it's 8 a.m. It's early, but uh, like you said, you got things to do and um, people coming over to visit you in a little bit. So I appreciate you making some time for us.
1: Oh, well, you know my motto always was sleep is overrated. I'll get all the sleep I need when I'm dead. So <laughs> I'm fine.
0: Well, and I yeah, saw you... you know what? go ahead, Brandon. Well, I just saw him taking pulls from coffee before you jumped on the call. So I know <laughs> he's getting all lathered up for us.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I never forget the uh, the first time I heard you say that it was in Kansas City. We were together in 95, and I think we we might have got into Texas at about two in the morning, and you and uh Monty had a it'd be Jeff Montgomery had a 6 a.m. tea time. And I was like, I am not making it. And you were like, "Going, dude, you can sleep when you're dead. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we're like, all right, I'll make it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's actually a pretty fun segue. Uh, so, Mark, you spent a great portion of your career in Kansas City. Uh, how different was it pitching in the summer in Kansas City versus Texas? Because uh, Kansas City is a meat grinder from probably July on, I would say.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially, uh, you know, with the AstroTurf, there were some times, especially some of those day games where I remember one day game I was pitching in August against the Red Sox. It was like 160 something on the turf. I mean, it was insane how hot it was. But uh, you know, for whatever reason, and I and I grew up in Philly, which was hot and humid during the summertime that, uh, you know, I never pitched well in April. And uh, Hopefully you guys never look up my numbers in April because they're not real good. So I, I liked it warm. <laughs> And, you know, for whatever reason, you know, and all he knows is better than anybody, I could, I could I could, sweat in a refrigerator. I was so, you know, I was always sweating and lathered up. So I liked it. I, it, I threw less pitches warming up to get into the game and it got in a better flow when it was hotter. So, yes, it was hot there. Texas was unreal. And I, I, I finally figured it out. Remember the old stadium area in Texas, even in the newer yet old stadium in Texas. Now they have another new one. That, I mean, up on the sign, they would say it's 132 degrees or something. I'm like, how can it be 130-some degrees? There's no way. We'd be all fried. But uh, I think it was all part of the yeah, home field advantage. But it was hot. But there was nothing there was nothing really quite like – and I, I, I'd I only played in St. Louis or went there as a broadcaster. I know that place is hot. But Cincinnati the same. But uh, Kansas City during the summertime, boy, it got pretty hot.
2: I remember just watching all our guys coming in there and. I never figured out why, you know. I mean, at least Texas would shut off the day game starting May 1st. You know, Kansas City, man, it was a Sunday day game. Didn't matter if it was August, if it was April, it did not matter. You were playing a day game. And I remember looking at some of our guys, and some guys were putting lettuce in their shoes because their feet were so hot out on the turf. And I mean, it was 130, whatever, you know, sitting out in the bullpen. I was frying, but just laughing at all the guys trying something to get their, their feet were just burning up on the turf and wearing those
0: black spikes. You don't need don't Burt Blylevin gonna... for a hot foot there. That's, that's <laughs> hot foot on its own.
1: Yeah. No purple. I needed there in Kansas city during those hot summer days.
0: Mm-hmm. So no. you like the, you like the heat. You landed in, uh, I guess Los Angeles Anaheim. I don't know what the angels call themselves right now, um, angels. but angels. <laughs> yeah. So you're in uh, Southern Cal and, um, Oh, people should follow you on Twitter at too at Mark Gubiza, uh, G-U-B-I-C-Z-A if people are not familiar with the spelling. But um, you are doing color commentary for them Uh, out of curiosity. So you said you were from Philly. Mm -hmm. You played forever in Kansas City, and yet you pitched a few innings for the Angels and you work for the Angels. How did that come to be? Because uh, a lot of times, you know, guys like uh, Oli here, um, you know, he's going to work with the Orioles because he played for the Orioles for a long time how did that come together for you? Yeah, right.
1: That's a great question because, you know, obviously uh, I always joke around about my ERA with the angels. If I could take, move that decimal point over a little bit, it's actually not too bad, but where it's at right now (laughs) in my career, is not real good. So, you know what it is, you know, my my wife's from out here. We've been living out here during the off season since uh, 86. So, you know, I did some stuff for the angels when I was done playing, you know, that was my one real regret in my career. I didn't do anything for the angels. I felt you know, I do tried everything to be able to come back at surgery, even came, tried to come back in the middle of the season with it. Didn't work out. But uh, I, I started doing some radio stuff out here out of the blue. And even, a, you know, a show on Fox Sports, it was called Baseball Today, kind of a takeoff of Baseball Tonight. And, uh, you know, a couple of the Angels people say, hey, would you be interested in doing some pre and post game stuff for the Angels? I said, sure. And I did some stuff for the Dodgers as well. And, you know, then all of a sudden we're at one of their, their meetings during the winter time, and and our executive producer at that point, Tom Fuhr, came up and said, hey, hey would you be interested in doing some games? I'm like, hello. Yeah. You know, it started at 50 games and then it went up to 100. And then 15 years later, I'm still doing it. So, yeah, it's a tough, weird question how, how this came about. But uh, this relationships I built with Tim Meade, who was running the PR department at that point for the Angels and Artie Moreno, the owner, we, we just hit it off really well and you know just being around doing these games every day has been really really cool and and only you know me well I mean you know uh, people would always say hey, I can't believe you're doing this because you you know you don't talk a lot in public but he saw me enough in the in the dugouts and the clubhouse and planes and the buses you knew I had a gift of gab so this was kind of a fun thing and this
2: kind of evolved into where I'm at right now. Well you had a great personality and it just you know comes through I got to being out in Southern California for my last, for the last 20 years, I got to watch you and do your work and, and uh, you're really good at what you do. And and your personality, you know, comes through and, and you can, you can flat out talk. You just, you know, got to get
0: around people that you know.
2: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, I feel a little
0: intimidated Uh, being with uh, guys who both do what you do. So um, maybe I'm not even, not even necessary today,
1: but your hair is great though. That's all that matters. Thank you.
0: My wife does hair, so I better be. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I'll give you a warning, Gooby. Brandon will come up with a
2: question that you have never been asked before.
0: Oh, I, oh I, I, I,
2: all right. I better have another sip then. At this point, take another. No, I'm, just, I, I'm just giving you a warning because he's gotten me about four or five times so far <laughs> in our podcast with with something where I just sit there and I'm going.
0: I've literally in 20 years, never been asked that question. I was like, really good. You don't realize no. how much my heart soars when you say that. So <laughs> the fact that you say that feels so good, that, that for me, because I hate the cookie cutter analysis at the end of games, you know, talk about this, talk about that. First of all, you're going to talk about it anyway. So I don't have to tell you to talk about it, but also that's not a question. I need to ask you why you threw, like I was telling Gooby off the air, um, a three, two fastball when your splits been good all night or why you, uh, you know why you went after a guy when he had Brett Maine behind him, right? Uh, right, Oli. Yeah, exactly. Ah. Yeah, that, that's a callback to uh, Buck Showalter having you, or you and Buck deciding to walk Barry Bonds with the bases loaded. But I no. digressed. But Buck, Buck, <laughs> yeah. Buck, des- Buck decided that. I just uh, went along for the ride. That's one of my favorite clips, though, because uh, it it just it is absolutely great. I, I do want to talk about. We'll go back into the 80s a little bit. And uh, actually, there's, a, there's some fun contrast between you guys, um, not only starter versus closer, but college versus high school, um, early 80s versus mid to late 80s. So you guys have some contrast that you can kind of bounce off each other. But um, the draft round, Mark, you went in, the second round. No, first of all, uh, the draft was different back then, wasn't it? Didn't they have a, a January phase and then a June phase?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that that year, that January, Danny Jackson was one of our top picks for the for the wow. Royals. So uh, I mean, it went from Danny Jackson that year to that spring was myself, David Conis, another pitcher named Tony Ferrer, and then that following year was Brett Saberhagen. So I mean, John Shearholtz, at that point when I was drafted, was part head of the you know the minor league department, and then eventually became the general manager, and we know now in, in Cooperstown,
0: he knows pitching.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, every time when you look at teams. That are good, now even, it's all about pitching. And, you know, we always joke about, you know, is the best athlete and this and that. But if you have good pitching, you automatically have a chance to win. And even if your team doesn't score a lot, you still have a chance. So, I mean, I remember that draft that year thinking, well, I hope I get drafted by the Phillies because the crazy thing, that in 1980, I'm at game six of the World Series with my dad, the only game I ever went to in my whole life with my dad. I'm right behind the dugout because Ruben Amaro Sr. was a first base coach, and and his two sons went to my high school. So they got us tickets. Literally, I'm right behind the dugout where that ball pops out of Bob Boone's glove and the Pete Rose's glove. So and I'm sitting there, they win the World Series. I'm screaming, saying George Brett's the worst player ever seen. Willie Wilson is horrible. Frank White, these guys are the worst (laughs) worst things in the world. I'm screaming everything. I'm finding out I'm researching their moms' names and everything else. I'm screaming at them. And, you know, and then they win the World Series. I'm like, hey, Tug McGraw, please get Willie Wilson up up there so he can strike out again. And and I'm screaming as loud as I can. Lo and behold, six months later whatever, hey, Willie, you're the best guy in the world, man. You're my best buddy. And George Brett, I actually live with George Brett my first two years in the big league, the first couple months of the season. So these guys I'm bagging on saying Schmidty's way better than George Brett. Lo and behold, I'm living with them the next year, the next few years.
0: Well, not a bad pair to choose from between Schmidt and George Brett. You kind of yeah. got the who's who at the hot corner. Oh, that's funny. That's really good. Wow. That is story. You, I hope people Probably, see the video to see my face from <laughs> when that came, that when the wheel started spinning for me that those guys were royals and you were a royal, I was like, oh boy. Yeah, that was a tough pill to swallow.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you know, twins got, I got with, to be. With twins I got
2: to be go ahead, Mark Gooby. I'm sorry.
1: No, I'm going to say we had some battles there. Even that year, you know, we get to the playoffs, you know, we win. Well, I think we won 84 games my first year in 84. And then we got beat. In my opinion, to this day, I think the best team that nobody ever talks about was mm-hmm. the Tigers. That 84 team. Yep. Yep. I was convinced everyone else had a 25-man roster. I was convinced they had a 40-man roster they were playing with every day. They had platoon guys. I mean, Howard Johnson was barely getting any at-bats at third base for him. Tom Brooks was getting a lot of at-bats. It was insane how good they were and how you know you got Lance Parrish behind the plate I'm thinking that's a gladiator before there was gladiators in baseball so you know Kirk Gibson who wanted running down the line wanted to rip your Achilles as you got the first base every time he wanted to kill the pitcher covering the bag they had everything going plus they had Jack Morris, and you know Willie Hernandez was the MVP as the closer that year so that team was incredible then the next year you know we we're picked to come in fourth or fifth place in the AOS, and lo and behold, we uh, we won by one game over the Angels and end up winning the World Series that following year.
0: Oh, you I, I, I only—I—I jumped on you.
2: No, you're good. I was just uh, running through, and la- still laughing about the story, you know, of, of you sitting there. I mean, you're you're ragging on a couple of the nicest guys that I was ever around: it's, uh, Frank White, <laughs> Willie Wilson, George Brett. You know, <laughs> and then. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still kind of running process in that one going, yeah, okay, that, yeah, that's pretty good. Did you, did you ever tell him? Of course. I mean, Willie
1: Wilson, I told him that the, first, the first day I'm in, actually on the big league roster that year. I go, Willie, you have no uh, no idea how much of a hero you were of mine. He goes, really? I was? I go, yeah, because I was rooting for you to come to the plate every time against the Phillies in the World Series because I knew you were going to strike out. He goes, man, Gooby, that ain't cool. I go, Hey, you're my friend now, but you weren't my friend then. So he started <laughs> laughing. And you know how Willie was, man. He started giving me all kinds of grief about that. But, uh, you know, Frank White was, you know, he was one of the all-time great. I mean, what, eight-time Gold Glove winner. But uh, to this day, I saw, I saw a couple of years ago when Vlad Guerrero got put in the Hall of Fame, I represented the Angels there, and, and Mike Schmidt and George Brett were there. And and George was always giving me grief about that exact same story. He goes, man, Gooby liked you way more than me. And, and and Schmitty, you know, being Mike Schmitty goes, well, do you blame him? And is uh, <laughs> like, hey, but he didn't live with you the first couple of years of the season. He goes, well, that's true. I, I'm probably, It's probably a good thing he didn't. It is, uh, he just started laughing like that, too, because Schmitty, obviously, playing, I was playing stickball back in Philly in the schoolyards, and I was Mike Schmidt or Greg Lozinski or Gary Maddox or Bake McBride, all those guys in the 70s and 80s, so I was all emulating those guys playing stickball, but to and you notice only when you when you idolize all these players and all of a sudden you're playing with them or playing against them it's such a it's such a crazy cool feeling you got their baseball cards their slurpee cups and all these things and you get to tell those stories it's so much fun I mean I I love the competition but the stories and being around the guys and and to say I didn't like you back then and now all of a sudden like you're one of my best friends and you know, George and I, we're still talking to each other all the time, but to, to have that, you know, I'm thinking, man, I'm glad Dickie Knowles threw that ball up and in on him and dropped him at home plate in game, I think game three and <laughs> whatever it was in Kansas city. And now he's my guy, you know, so it was crazy to be able to think about it. you become a fan to become an, you know, you know, friends for life. It's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, that's really good. I mean, you know, obviously the Royals were huge. I grew up in Omaha, so you guys were huge to watch and I grew up a fan of yours being a little bit younger than you, but, uh, you know, George was gone by the time I got to you guys in KC. Frank was a coach, but it was just that group of guys. It was, it was, um, you know, they are fun to watch. And then all of a sudden you get to know a couple of them, Frank and George would be around. And it was just like the nicest best guys that you could be around on a daily basis. It was, it was, um, uh, it was, it was lifting. It was nice. You know, you root for him your whole life, and then all of a sudden you're on that team, and you're, you're around the room, and Frank White's one of your coaches, and you're just like, this guy couldn't be any nicer, you know? Yeah. And then I, I imagine for you, I'm thinking, you know, we had, we had Bull as our hitting coach for a little while, you know, and what was that like for you knowing, you know, same kind of thing, and all of a sudden now he comes, and, and that'd be Greg Luzinski um, coming back and, and being the hitting coach for the Royals.
1: Oh, that yeah, that was unreal, and having Bob Boone too. I mean, these, these are two guys, and Larry Bow was then end up being my bench yeah. coach for the Angels. So, there, there are three guys that I, I, you know, when I first met, especially you know, Bob Boone he ended up being my catcher and then our manager there. But, but Greg Lazinski, you know, in the bull ring in, in Veteran Stadium to go down there because I was always in the 700 level, I had that $2.50 ticket because <laughs> I didn't have enough money to go down there. But every once in a while, I tried to sneak down to the bull ring that was right above. You know, left field at three or four hundred level. They go, okay. How are you going to let this low life me ever down there? Into that three or four hundred level at a, at a baseball stadium. So I finally made my way down there too. And and I and, and Bull was the best. I mean, he how about him on on the buses and stuff? Because hey, guy, you go. Hey, Gooby. Uh, what was that pitch you threw to Jose Canseco? Because it went about four hundred fifty feet. Did you throw it exactly where you wanted it? And I was like, "Oh man, I hate Nicole. you're the worst back and forth and all those things on the bus." But uh, he was—I mean, I'll tell you what—you know, I I faced him when he was with the White Sox, and I remember one day it was, again a hot day in Kansas City, he's like overheating, so he's in our clubhouse laying on the trainer's table, and our team doctor coming in there. I'm like, "Doc, you got to save him. It's the bull, please." That's one of my all-time favorite human beings, but it was so hot that day, and there, in those unis the White Sox were wearing. God, I don't know what they were thinking of. But he, you know, he ended up being obviously okay. But I'm like, please save the bull. Please save the bull. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually here he is in the clubhouse. I'm like, you're the worst. You're the worst. I used to love you growing up as a kid. I can't stand you now. And he'd be going, you can't even get anybody out anymore. Your arm is gross.
2: He was ruthless.
0: Oh, man. Oh, well, it was. It sounds like the opposite of uh, Willie Wilson then. You you love to hate and then you hate to love. So uh, that's, a, that's a fun transition. <laughs> yeah. So uh, to step back for a second, uh, how does uh, how does one go in the January draft as a January draft? That's easy for me to say, as opposed to June, because um, obviously you'd still been in high school in January. So you probably wouldn't been eligible. But uh, it doesn't make sense to me um, in the sense of like, okay, well, if you didn't go in this June draft, would you have been eligible in January the next year? Or how did that work?
1: Yeah, I'm going to probably get this wrong, and and Oli may know this better than me, but I think most of those guys in that time in January were were junior college. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Okay. I know Danny Jackson was that. I'll tell you what. I think Kirby Puckett went in the January draft too. Yes, yes. So I mean, Danny Jackson was one of the nastiest pitchers I've ever seen, one of the fiercest competitors. I mean, we called him Jason from Friday the 13th because when he was on the mound (laughs) or competing – like, didn't mess with him and, and and Bo Jackson, you know, the strongest human being in the history of mankind. And, and all you know him well from your Auburn days too. They got, you know, we're like Danny Jackson's legs were like a, a like a linebacker or even a, a running back like Earl Campbell back at the Houston Oilers. And they were messing around one day, and Danny being Jason at that point of his of the day, and they started wrestling and and Bo didn't get the best of them. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I ever want to mess with Danny Jackson, because two things come to mind. He's the strongest guy. One of the strongest guys ever. Plus there might be a few uh, loose screws in there. So I'm like, and I'm not messing with him. And his, his slider was like Ron Guidry. Uh, I mean, and his fastball ran and, and he was similar to me where he was a drop and drive guy. So he was really crushing his left knee and I'm crushing my right knee, but that was something the Royals were big believers in to keep the ball down as the old drop and drive Tom Seaver type of delivery. But uh, I'll tell you, we had some – and only you were around with me and our team enough. We had some interesting characters over the years, some Jeff Montgomery and, and guys like oh. that. Were, uh, the guys that you, you look at and you have a conversation, with, oh, really nice guy. But, like, when you're on that baseball field or in that dugout, it's, it, it's a different – I mean, same thing with me. Everyone – I was convinced every human being hated my guts that didn't have the same uniform. You know, <laughs> every, every guy that came over from Neil Heaton, he goes, man, we used to scream at you saying this and that about you all day long he goes you're really not that bad of a guy i'm like well you know what i'm wearing a different color uniform than you i don't care if you hate my guts i even fought my brother on a basketball court for a loose basketball and then it didn't work out for me by the way my brother was pretty tough and later on that day real quick my dad goes all right if you guys are going to fight on the court and embarrass me so he gives us two pairs of boxing gloves to finish off the fight where we got home i'm like really dad did you see me getting beat up on the basketball court he goes now it's time to finish it i'm like oh in other words he was he was trying to make a point don't fight your brother on the court because now you got to fight him at home with boxing gloves on i'm like oh that's a real good idea i think i will get a pass on that one too (laughs) and you you, i mean is your brother bigger than you because dude you're what you're six six yeah no i mean i have a brother that's five foot eight i have a brother that's five foot ten and this brother's six foot but he's uh He's one of those silent guys that you always worry about, the guys that are quiet. You know that. The guys that are quiet is one you always worry about. But uh, And he was he was quick. He was like Doc Holliday on Tombstone, man. He was real quick with the draw, So And I wasn't. I was waiting around like, look, what am I going to do? Boom, I'm already knocked down. So,
0: no, wasn't a good decision. Well, you, you mentioned uh, Neil Heaton. You went in a pretty impressive row of players, actually. Uh, this is not in the first round, but the second round. But it was Mike Gallego, who was a very good infielder for a long time, then you, uh, Mark Langston, who was a a terrific pitcher for the Angels and and a few other teams, Mariners. Um, And then one pick after that, uh, Frank Viola, who Twins fans saw a lot of, also Mets, um, Red Sox, kind of all over the place too. Uh, That's quite a run of talent in a second round. That that looked like a pick's like three, four, five, six – In the first round, not, um, let's see, seven, eight, nine, and 11 in the second round. That's an incredible run of talent right there.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I know Tony Gwynn was a third-round pick that year, and Joe Carter was in that draft. Wow. A lot of people talked about that draft as being one of the better ones because the baseball draft is unlike any other draft because you could be the first overall pick. And our first-round pick, you know, Dave Leeper was an outfielder with USC. Good dude. Played. Maybe thirty games in the big leagues with us, and that was it. So there was no, there's no guarantee ever in baseball as far as if you're a first rounder, you you get a better opportunity to play. They'll keep you around more. So, but uh, I mean that draft, I I look back because we always joke because Gallego's the bench coach with the Angels, and you know, and Langston, Mark Langston does the the color analyst job for the radio side. So we're all right in a row, just laughing at each other. We're all standing over Mike Gallego, but wait a minute, you were drafted ahead of us, and he's just sit there and laugh and have a good old time. So same, you know the. You know, Mark Grant, who does the color analyst job for, you know, the, the Padres always jokes around. and goes, hey, by the way, guys, I was a first rounder. You guys were I'm like, oh, man, he kills you on that one, too. By the so, way, I want to I
0: want to test Oli here. Um, any idea who was the last pick of that second round? Because I, I suspect Gubiza knows, but it's a very famous non-baseball player who went 52nd overall to the Yankees. Oh, I got no idea. I mean, I, I want. Uh, no, I got nothing. Gooby, what do you got? Uh, is it Elway? It's John Elway. So yeah. wow. literally, we're if you if you sort by career war, and I don't know if you guys like war as a stat, but we don't have to talk about that. It goes Langston, Biola, Gubiza Gallego, Darren Jackson, Sid Bream. I mean, you're talking about some guys who had some either really big individual moments or very good careers. And then all the way down there, you're like, holy smokes, John Elway went in that draft too like that. That is a first round worth of talent in the second round. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, and,
1: and, and the funny thing is because I just saw this because I'm always just checking out baseball, little odd things on on Twitter and stuff and social media. And I guess in '79 the Royals drafted Dan Marino. Is mm. I, th- I thought he was a second round or two, but I think it ended up being maybe a fourth round pick. And I'm thinking that would have been pretty cool to be able to you know suit up the baseball uniform with Dan Marino because I heard he was a really really good pitcher out of Pennsylvania area too, where I grew up. So uh, you know, it's it's pretty cool when you look at some of the names that, that were drafted. And and some of the guys, you know, even when I was drafted, thinking there's these guys are so much better than me. I mean, you know, I mean, you played in college, so you played against a bet, better, you know, competition only. But when you're drafted at high school, my, I, I think the first pitch I ever threw, Darrell Boston, I think, is now the first base coach for uh, the White Sox. Hits a line drive right off my wrist. I'm like, "Whoa, Ooh. maybe I'm not that good." at Really? The <laughs> first pitch I throw, like, "Wow!" I like, you know, fortunate enough, I got it out with it somehow, some way. But it's like, "Whoa!" I'm like, everybody is really, really good in high school. You think, "Okay, you're the guy," but when you get drafted, and everyone else is really good, and it's like, man, you're all you're like, you're salmon swimming upstream. You're trying to be the one that makes it up there without the bear getting it. And you, but uh, it's so much great talent. It's so much fun to compete against the guys that. You know that like were fast, could throw harder, could hit the ball a mile. So it was it was fun. Andres Galarraga, my 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 first year in A ball, hit a ball about 450 feet. The first home run I ever gave up in professional ball. I'm like, man, I hope I never face this guy again, or hope I never. He never makes it to big legs. Lo and behold,
2: (laughs) yeah, I did. (laughs) Jeez, yeah, he got me. He got me too. So
0: I think he got a lot of people, especially once he got to Colorado. But before that, he was uh, he was pretty good too. Um, so your path to the big leagues though, again, different than Greg's. I think like we say, Greg was in the minor leagues for about a half an hour. You had, um, you had the full, or at least a very extensive minor league experience, um, including throwing 196 innings in one minor league season. I don't think they do that anymore.
1: No, no. and that was <laughs> Yeah. That was, in you know, double a too. And, and yeah. our, my manager was Gene Lamont who ended up being a major league manager, yeah. a third base coach for a lot of years. Yeah. and. It was, it was crazy, especially because you, you really kind of really don't know what what your your path is going to be. Growing up in Philly, you play baseball. It would Be the same thing that you brand up there in Minnesota. You play baseball for like three months, right? And then you then everybody you're 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 hanging out with in the minor leagues played in California, Texas, or Florida, where they play twelve months a year. So you think, okay, they're way more advanced than me. I mean, I'm I i do not know if I'm ever going to make it to Triple A, but Double A. I remember, you know, pitching well, and I'm in a, an All-Star game that year with Mark Langston, Jimmy Key, and a bunch of other really Danny Tartab. All those guys were in Double A that year, and I was in Jacksonville. And Gene hey. Lamont was like, there was about three or four guys that they kept moving up from our from our roster, and, and three of them were pitchers. and He and he pulled me aside. He goes, "So you, what do you think about yourself?" I'm like, you know, that, that's some sort of a trick question. I think I. Go, uh, I'm lucky, whatever. I don't know what else to say. He goes, are you mad at these three other guys have been called up to Omaha and you're not? I go, no, I'm happy for them. They're friends. He goes, but you're you're pitching way better than them. I go, uh, what kind of case are you making for me right here? Do you know? I said, what do, you, what do you want me to say? I go, he goes, trust me, those guys are going up to Omaha. That's great. You're not going. Just keep your mouth shut. Don't worry about it. Maybe you'll never go to Omaha. I'm like, my, whatever. I'm, I'm thinking, geez, am I, am I going to be released at double A? Because <laughs> I always thought, especially when you're at high school, you go rookie ball, A ball, double A, triple A, and then you might be in triple A for a couple years before you do that. You know, because my A ball year, I, I got hurt. I only pitched like 10 games. So, I mean, I was progressing at a, a pretty rapid rate and still having no idea how that was even happening. So, when he said that, I was like, man, I was kind of And that, okay, maybe I should have been already moved up to Omaha. That way I'm that much closer to reaching my dream. But when I I look back now, that was the best, probably best thing anybody's ever said to me goes, don't worry about going to Omaha or AAA because you might not have to go there. And I, and I never thought anything, but the fact is, what is he talking about? So so obviously the next year I skipped Omaha, went from AA to the big leagues. So that was pretty cool.
0: You you did eventually make it to Omaha, but it was under different circumstances. Yeah. 1991.
1: Yeah, I did. Yes. You know, there's a couple of rehab assignments here and there. Hey, one of the all time, I have to tell this story. And I don't know if I ever told you this one, Holy. So we're, uh, we're playing in one of those exhibition games every year, the Royals would go to Omaha and I'm sure you saw us there, Ollie. Oh yeah. And then we're playing a game, I think it was at four o'clock. So and it was sunny and I, I remember pitching and I'm thinking, you know what? I can't, I can't even see home plate. And the sun was going through the old stadium, like right in the eye, right in my eyes. And, and we're playing against, you know, our guys, the AAA team. So I'm, I'm in there. I'm looking. I can't see the sign. I'm like, all right. I'm just gonna throw the ball. I'm, I'm, and then I'm thinking, boy, if it's a line drive back at me, I have no chance of getting out of the way. So I, I throw a pitch, and for whatever reason, right now, I'm, I'm losing my thought about it, where who the hitter was. So it was my, my old, old roommate in rookie ball. So I hit him literally right in the mouth with a pitch, right in the mouth. So I'm looking. I, I, you know, he's my he's one of my my good friends there and we're looking on the ground for his teeth and i'm like oh my god i can't believe i would would this happened because he didn't see the pitch i didn't even see where i threw it so he's like leaning out over the plate like most hitters will turn their head like this he looks in there like to try to see the ball we're thinking why are we playing at this at this hour of the day but you know it was one of those times where you were going there and you didn't want to be that pitcher pitching that game because that means you, they skipped your spot in the rotation. So I was like, oh, man. So everything's going wrong for me that day. So uh, I was lucky from that point forward as the last game. I don't know if it was because of what I did or because I actually started pitching a little better. I never had a pitch in that
0: exhibition game there in Omaha. Well, whatever makes you feel better, I would say, was be, would be the reasoning. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. What uh, – yes greg's greg's face right now if i can paint a picture for people who are Uh, not watching uh,
2: yeah no i just uh just running through that whole scenario of hitting the guy in the face and it's like just yeah
0: i think greg's counting his teeth right now making sure that uh yeah no
2: i've been in the other spot too gooby where you're sitting there and i don't i think i was in buffalo um right before i don't know if it was right before i ended up with you guys in kansas city in 95 but same thing kind of a day game everybody seemed to be wearing white shirts and it was like i ended up getting hit in the chest with a line drive and it was just like i was it was more disturbing it hurt hey but it was more disturbing that i never saw it you yeah. know and so I, I can imagine what you're thinking out there going okay i can't see anything um and then oh and then he hit the guy in the face mm.
1: yeah so yeah you know, like i said his name joe he was my roommate and you know, and he, I think he eventually made it to the major league level. But I'm thinking, I, I felt so horrible, I, I I couldn't really pitch anymore from that point. One, I'd ever, you know, I hit my share back. Actually, I think I still have the record in Kansas City, which is, I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of that or not proud of that one. But uh, you know, to hit him like that and and, and thinking, am I going to derail his dream of getting to the major leagues myself yeah. doing that? That that killed me, and I was like, I was shot that rest of that day, and. But I mean, he, you know, he was a tough dude. I think he was from Chicago, Illinois area, as a matter of fact. And and Joe, you know, said, "Hey, man, I didn't see the ball." I said, "I didn't even see it out of my hand." So I and he goes, "No big deal." And he was like, "Red," he was playing shortly thereafter. That's the thing; it was crazy. He was a, he was a tough kid, and that's the only way you can come back. You know, when you get a line drive as a pitcher, you better get right back out there and pitch again, or it starts creeping in your mind, and then you start recoiling as a pitcher and and worried about line drives and this and that you don't, you're not as effective. So you got to bounce back there as quick as possible.
2: Let me ask you, Gooby. Uh, I mean, while we're uh, competitors, I was with Baltimore. You were in Kansas city, one of the nastiest guys that, and I heard I, I told you when I got over there, in 95 hated you because I knew I wasn't going to be pitching that day. If we, because we, you were going to, you were going to stuff, stuff us in Baltimore with your nasty sinker slider, um, Always one of my favorite. Do you is, do you see anybody today in today's game that was that was you?
1: Ooh, let's see. Uh, I'm trying to think of. I, God boy, there's been some pretty good ones. I, I because I, we're in in an era where so many more pitches are thrown four seam fastballs and curveballs. The crazy thing, guys, when I was drafted out of Philly, I threw a four seam fastball and a curveball, literally straight over the top. I got down there yeah. the first day in camp. In rookie ball camp, they go, "You're throwing a two seam fastball and a slider." I go, "But I throw a four seam <laughs> and a curve." They go, "You're throwing a slider and a sinker." I go, "Okay, sir, all right." So <laughs> immediately abandoned that. So there's a couple guys that I'm trying to think right now that you know, especially that you see Ian Anderson, the kid from the Braves, has some pretty good movement down in really the strike zone. Uh, you know, even you know, I looked at last night with uh, Garcia is another pitcher for the Astros that throws that hard sinker anybody throws a hard sinker now now you're starting to see the evolution where it's okay for hitters to make contact against you because if it's on the ground it takes mm-hmm. three or four hits to get it or get a run as compared to yep. you know home runs and everyone's thinking okay we got to avoid the lower part of the strike zone because everyone's into that so-called launch angle where they're lifting the ball up but still it's still a hard pitch to hit out of the ballpark when it's at the knees or below with some movement so i always believed that you take the sting in the bat, to, you know, by by running that fastball either on the hands of a right-handed batter or towards the end of the bat. So you're starting to see that evolution coming back now. Bottom line is, there's so many incredible athletes in our game right now. Why would you not utilize them? I mean, watching yeah. you guys saw in in Andleton Simmons. Oh, granted, there were some times where <laughs> it wasn't as good for him in Minnesota, but when he was with the Angels, I've never seen anything like him. You oh, saw, he, him he was good, but not with, as good, yeah. Oh, um, my word. I mean, you're talking about shortstops and. The Angels had Jose Iglesias this year making plays that were were incredible.
0: Um,
1: Second baseman's making, you know, incredible plays. Third baseman, first baseman, before you had a big guy like a Steve Balboni who could hit a home run and he could scoop some throws, but range wasn't necessarily there. But now you're seeing guys. So I I love the fact that when you see guys pitch in the lower third of the strike zone that it's not a bad thing anymore, that it's a way to get, get
0: people out. Well, so for your time, and we talk about Greg's strikeout propensity, which for relievers different, you know, if -hmm. if you struck out, if you now are a reliever striking out a batter per inning, they don't care. That's pretty standard. Back in in that day, it was a big deal. And for starters, it was pretty much unheard of. But you were in that six to seven range for strikeouts per nine innings. So you still managed to strike people out. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm not totally sure what I'm asking. It's just like the evolution of the game to where six strikeouts per nine went from the top of the top to now you better have a really good uh, ground ball pitch or something like that. Um, How did you kind of transcend that? Because you were striking guys out in a, in an era where people weren't really striking out even six batters per nine innings.
1: Yeah. You know, it's crazy. I have a lot of conversation. We, even with some of the players now from guys that are on the angels starting staff or even other teams. And, you know, regularly you're seeing guys with 200 plus strikeouts or 250, a Garrett Cole with even not with, over 200 innings with 250 strikeouts hitters at that point were embarrassed when they struck out, they really, yeah. were. I mean, they, they, wanted to, they wanted to fight you if, if you struck them out. So for me to get a strikeout, I mean, I had a really battle because I, I mean, as a sinker ball pitcher, it's tough to get hitters a swing and miss at a fastball at the knees. They're going to make some sort of contact. So I had to fight my way to get ahead of the count and try to finish them off to get them to swing a slider about eight feet outside. That, that was my goal. But, you know, that, and especially early in my career, and I, I think that's part of the reason why I was so inconsistent early in my career with a lot of walks because I, st- I tried to throw the ball through the catcher. I tried to throw the nastiest slider every pitch. And then I finally realized I had a pitching coach named Frank Funk, and I, you probably know him, Oli. He came up, and his, his big thing, in spring training, he said one line to me. He goes, I need you to try easy. And I'm looking, and I'm like, and, and, and Oli knows me, Brandon, real well. That's not in my DNA. I'm, I'm a, a psycho when I'm out on the mat. <laughs> but he said, if you try easy and not try to throw the ball through the catcher, look how many outs you can get on one or two pitches. So I'm like, oh, man, I, I just don't – I don't have it. So he says it in spring training. So you get some spring training games to kind of work on it. And lo and behold, I'm getting – I'm going nine innings with 88 pitches, 92 pitches. and said I did that in four innings early in my career – so even at the high school level where I'm teaching at right now, I have a little bet with my kids. I go, "Hey, how many outs can you get with two pitches or less?" And they and they're thinking, "Hey, that's pretty good." Because I said, "Then you save your nasty, you know, Greg Olson curveball to get a strikeout." Because if mm-hmm. I get if I get one and out with one or two pitches, why well, save my best pitch when I need it with a guy on third base? I mean, that's that's your goal to save your best stuff when the guy's in scoring position. Because otherwise. You know, you make a mistake, hit it out of the ballpark, that's your fault. But if you make a good quality pitch, you might give up a single, but it's going to take a couple of them yeah. to score. But if you walk guys, which I did a ton of, I, I think I had 120 walks back in 87, which is incredible how many mm-hmm. walks I used to have, that uh, I finally figured it out. And that's why I
0: got more consistent, a little bit better. So uh, to, to dive one last time into your minor league experience, in one year and then the next you played with, I want to say teenage Brett Saberhagen and David Cohn or mm-hmm. vice versa. So when I call them baby Cohn and baby Saberhagen, I'm not being derisive. They were literally teenagers. Uh, what was it like coming up with those guys? Because that's, that's a pretty impressive trio. I mean, we talk about Hudson, Mulder and Zito and, you know, Smoltz and Maddox and, and Glavin and granted Maddox came over from the Cubs, but um, that's, you know, it's that's an impressive trio to come through all the same system at pretty much the same time. Uh, what was that like?
1: That was crazy because here's David Cohn going back. He grew up in Kansas City, so he's you know big George Brett fan. I'm, I'm a Mike Schmidt fan, so right away we're we're, we're clashing right away. Who's better, the <laughs> third baseman? And then uh, you know, so I think going away from home for the first time in my life. You know, we're in the minor leagues. We're staying in. In, in baseball, city. you know, we, we went to baseball city after a few years, but we're in Sarasota where baseball, the academy was there. Where That's where Frank what we used to call him Academy Frank. So you're in, you know, sometimes you're in a room with four guys. Sometimes you're in a room with eight guys and two guys. And you're living away from your, your home for the first time in your life. You're eating dorm food. And I remember thinking, man, I hope I get hurt. I want to go home. I don't want to do this. I don't. I, there's no way. I can't. I went from, you know, being around my my Mom and dad, my three older brothers, I have 17 dudes. We hang around in the schoolyard every day, rain, snow, cold, and hot. And I'm down there and I'm in an environment where I wasn't comfortable. So David Cohn and I became like fast friends right away. And, you know, his personality were rock and rollers. And 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 then, then you get to the competitive nature where you're competing against each other. Because, you know, at some point you're battling for this, maybe the same job. So yeah. You're friends, yet you're competing. And then the next year, Saves is drafted. So here he is. I'm I'm looking at Saves. I'm East Coast, like crazy, you know, John Wick guy from all the movies. And here's Saves, Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, (laughs) wearing a hat. And he's got a Saves 1 on the back of his uh, El Camino truck driving down to sprint training. And I'm like, who is this dude? There's no (laughs) way. This is a classic, (laughs) complete styles. And and lo and behold, we we became – incredibly fast friends and he was with us in double a and, and, you know, we, we went all the way to the finals in Birmingham. We were taking on the tigers and, you know, for the championship in double a, we became friends. And so that next year, we're, we're in spring training and I was making that jump from double a together and Coney that year in 83 was covering home plate in a spring training game, Lake covering the plate, the guy slides in and blows out his knee on, on a hard slide. So Coney's path to the big legs was delayed a little bit while Saberhagen and myself were on that fast track. So we're in spring training that year, and and uh, you know Joe Beckwith, God rest his soul, was picked up in a trade, and he was supposed to be one of our starters, and he had some of the best stuff I've ever heard. I mean, I, I used to listen to Oli pitch, and I can always hear a curveball going through, and everybody goes, how do you hear a curveball going through the air? But you can hear that, and Joe Beckwith had that too, and throwing mid-90s at that point, he had a trouble throwing the bases. So there's one game where, he wasn't able to throw strikes warming up. So Dick Howser goes, hey, can you pitch? I'm like, oh, yeah, I can go right now. So Sabre and, my, and myself started pitching well. And and at that point, they never told you if you made the big leg club. So we're like, wait a minute. Nobody said anything. So we literally got our luggage. We snuck it in with all the other players' luggage. We, we <laughs> ran to the back of the bus thinking maybe nobody will notice we're on the bus. We're hiding <laughs> back there. We, we drive to the airport. We're doing the same thing, getting on the plane. We're playing Memphis our double-A team in an exhibition game before we head off to Kansas City because Avron Fogelman was one of our owners and he lived in, in Memphis. So we're thinking, wait, does he have any idea we're even on this plane or on this bus? And finally, the <laughs> counter comes back and goes, what are you guys doing? you think you're going to speak one through me like we didn't know you were on the plane like you guys were stowaways? We knew what we are doing. We're, you guys better not – You guys, and he goes, you two better not mess up because I'm, I'm sticking my neck out for you guys. I know you didn't pitch in A, but I have a lot of trust in your stuff. So you better go out there and perform. And lo and behold, we were roommates on the at road and at home. So it was crazy how we were able to sneak our way. We, at least we thought we snuck our way on the plane and buzz.
0: Wow. Oh, that's priceless. What, that a, really is. what a What a three-year run for you then, because 84, you guys go fa- face the Tigers, and then 85, you win the World Series. Um, and then the rest of your career, you know, Kansas City's kind of seeking that consistency. Uh, were you spoiled a little bit early in your career by that, do you think?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, cause here, I remember when I was drafted by the Royals, my dad goes, that's, that's a great organization because you know, they're in the American League. at that point. I was a total National League guy, but you look at the Royals three straight years, they're in the playoffs. And then you know, 80, they're in the playoffs and in the world series. So every year they're in the playoffs. So here I am in 84, when the playoffs again, I'm thinking this is going to happen every year. So then you win the world series and then, you know, you're always going to have that little bit of a hangover, but that very next year right at the all-star break is the thing. I think it really sent the organization on a, on a uh, difficult yeah. path was when Dick Houser came back and I'll never forget this. I get goosebumps coming and we're in Baltimore as a matter of fact. And when our uh, PR director, Dean Vogler comes in and goes, guys, we have an announcement to make And We're thinking, all right, we're, we know we're struggling. We know we always play better in the second half and this and that. Cause even that year in 85, we were horrible going into the all-star break. We're like seven games out and he said, Dick Houser won't, be with us the manager. the rest of the season he's battling brain cancer we were all like huh. and it like it was like boom and it's like because he was he was an amazing manager but he was a manager where you literally if you had a bad game he'd come up to go my bad I, I put you in a bad position i'm like no, no you didn't make the pitches he goes no, no no i should have had you in a position where you could succeed and if you and you pitch well he goes hey man you were awesome i mean he was that guy he was a we used to, you know, he's almost like a little pit bull where he protected you with an incredible passion. But when you were successful, he allowed you to breathe and enjoy the success. So there wasn't anybody quite like him. Uh, he was very, very protective of Just his players. And, and that really, really put us in a, in a spot where it really went with downward spin for a long, long time after Dick passed away that following
0: year. Yeah. What, well, um... Well, not to steal the if if Greg had a question here, uh, how would you compare and contrast 84 85 to 2014 2015? You know, making the playoffs. Um, obviously, the playoffs are structured differently. I think they'd win the wild card game one of those years, and the wild card didn't exist for 10 more years after you guys had your run. Um, but it was a build, it was a get to the cusp and then get over that hump. I think a lot of people view success linear that way. Yeah. um and it worked for you guys in that respect but uh you guys kind of did it in a different way though i mean kansas city in the you know 5 6 years ago had that core of hosmer kane uh mustakas uh all those guys and you guys had that core that kind of hung around still but um mm-hmm. you know without the benefit of the wild card you know you guys could get to the cusp but not quite get over the hump to make the playoffs there uh, a few times into the future
1: yeah that would that, that I, mean, I was you know, obviously you're still pulling from the organization that brought you along. It was, it was your family and, and Kansas city, my two oldest children were born out there in Kansas city. I, I love the place. And, and to see that and, and, and see the lack of success for years, I was almost nearly 30 years from when yeah. we won the world series make the playoffs till their run. They had the same thing in, in 14 and 15, where we had an 84, 85. And so, you know, here they are, they're playing the giants and, you know, I, I, Talk to my wife. I go, hey, let's go out to World Series for Game Six and hopefully Game Seven. So we go out. We we go on. We buy our own tickets. We buy get a hotel room. We f- get our airfare, and we're sitting in the, the 300 level there in the club level in, in Kansas City. And people are looking like, wait a minute, you're you're, you're sit, sitting amongst us right here. And they're Like, yeah, because I just wanted to sit there and have a beer with you guys and just have fun. And I remember they're sitting there going, the excitement level in that stadium was insane when they won game six. I'm like, here I am going back. I'm almost like reliving my life as a Philly fan watching that world series. Here I am in game six, they win that game and it was insane. And you know, people were just going nuts. So then that game seven. So like, all right, we got to go game seven too. So we stuck around and, and I'll I'll never forget this when the, when the bullpen opened up and, and, and Madison Bumble (laughs) came out and the fans go, so what do you think Ubi? I'm like, uh, I might feel real good right now. This dude is, I thought, until this day, I think he put together the best playoff postseason run of anybody in the history of sports. I mean, what he did, how that team ever won. Anyhow, the Giants in 14 was unreal. So he comes in there. They're like, all right. So I said, this weather to storm, go George Foreman, Muhammad Ali, this rope-a-dope. He's only going to pitch two or three innings. He just pitched a couple days ago. So then, like, the third inning is out there. And then the fourth inning, I'm like, mm, I'm not going to really right now. <laughs> I'm like, well, hey, at least you can always remember that 85 team that won the World Series because it could probably be a long time again. <laughs> so he was incredible. But the atmosphere in that ballpark, the sea of blue. Because yep. even if it, back in 85, we're playing the Cardinals, there was still a, a huge Cardinal fan base out in that area because, you know, the Cardinals are the Cardinals. So there was still some red shirts and here and that in, at Kauffman Stadium or Royal Stadium at that point. But there was an absolute sea of blue there. And, and, and to see them come back the following year to finally do that, it was pretty cool to see that. Because, you know, I knew Mike Moustakis from coaching against him in high school because he went to Chapel High School I coached against him. And, and all those guys getting to know them and, and, and you know, yeah. Alex Gordon, an Omaha guy, you know, all those guys coming up together fighting and and dealing with why you guys so bad to all of a sudden this core of very good high draft picks. They had a lot of number one draft picks go through there, all put it together. Their bullpen, all you know, this their bullpen was, it was unreal.
2: Yeah. They really were good.
1: Oh my God. I mean, they guys throwing at a thousand miles an hour, every one of them But you know, from Wade Davis on through to Herrera and, you know, they were really, really good. And, you know, to see them win that and beat the Mets the following year, as a Philly guy, anytime you beat a New York team, it's always a good thing
0: for me. Yeah. <laughs> you had uh, right. go ahead, uh, Brandon. Oh, so you had some pretty great guys in your back pocket for closers. I wanted to ask you about that because obviously all these experiences end of games, yours is beginning of games, but um, Quisenberry, Montgomery, uh, you were you were blessed with some pretty good bullpen guys.
1: Yeah. I mean, and Steve Farr was in that conversation too. Yep. I mean, so yep. it was it, the, the personality difference between quiz and, you know, and Steve Farr and then you got Jeff Montgomery and we used to, we, I still call him snake Pliskin because yeah. we used to joke <laughs> around saying the Monty's on the mound, throwing the ball. and All of a sudden he pops up, you know, the home plate puts the ball exactly where he wants. Like he slid <laughs> it underneath the ground and popped it up there because he wasn't a big guy. And you often wondered, man, how did how he got people out consistently? And his slider was great. His fastball command was awesome. But just, to, I mean, I, I you know even all those the, the time with Oli there, to pick the brains of guys in the bullpen, it's a different beast. I, I pitched one year, a couple one year down there in in, in the bullpen in '94, in and it's a different beast. I mean, because you feel like you're an everyday player because the phone rings, you're up. So you have a chance to get an everyday starter. We're all crazy dude. so we we play we pitch that one day we're flicking sunflower seeds or screaming at the other team the other four our golf game's incredible because we got four days in between start do that but but a bullpen guy because they don't even you never get noticed when you do your job but if you blow a save or or give up a home run and a game's lost everyone knows you you got to deal with looking at your starting pitcher in there go dude man you just lost my win man i worked seven eight innings for a w and then it's gone but you're, you're, but that, that relationship you build and, and, and quiz was incredible, but, you know, Jeff Montgomery and, you know, and I and Steve Farr, and we call him beast, you know, we, we still give him grief for the tightest jeans ever he used to wear. And, you know, all stuff. that's
0: in so, style now though.
1: Yeah, I know. I, 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 I feel pretty good about bringing that back now,
2: by there the you way.
1: Go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these, yeah. these guys are, they're, they're so, it's, it's so different. It's like a field goal kicker in, in football. Yeah. And when you, when you Make a field goal, dude. You're supposed to make that. Even if it's sixty-seven yards now, you're supposed to make it. But if you miss it, what's wrong with you? Why how can you possibly miss a field goal? And then you then you put everyone else in that same position. As a closer, you know the same thing. There's a lot of guys, especially in our era, where six steps, sixth inning, seventh inning, they're six or seven inning guys. But when you put them in that ninth inning, man, it, you know, cause the focus level for the manager, the hitters, the guys on the bench, the fans is insane. And people don't understand how difficult that is to get those last three outs. Everybody goes, oh, you know, who cares about a save? That's why you had guys like Lee Smith take it forever getting in the Hall of Fame. Like, how can you not protect a three run lead and for one inning? Or how do you get a save for if you go three innings and, you know, and do the job? I'm like, because. You don't know what you don't know what it's like to do that because it's a different beast for guys in the bullpen. And I learned that when I that phone would ring or be out there thinking, you know, not only I'm trying to win the game for everybody in the stands, but my teammates and everything else. And if I make a bad pitch, all that hard work goes away because I didn't make my pitch.
2: You ended up with two saves. Tell me about them. Yeah, I mean,
1: the the one I had, uh, I bring up that three inning save. I got one of those. I think we were up pretty decent amount of runs but i remember one game and i think it was a, I, I i might even got a, i even got a w one time out of the bullpen getting i think cal Ripken did roll into a double play with the bases loaded i came in a game but the one game i came in was a one inning save i remember feeling that i could throw the ball through the wall and, and i did i did some closing over in the in the japan tour in 88 now remember look you know at that point they were measuring velocity out of your hand like they are right now so 90, when you're throwing 93, 94 in our day, that's when it's crossing the plate. Now it's out of the hand, so there's a pretty significant distance the baseball is going from your hand to home plate. So I, I'm not saying we were throwing 99 to 100, but out of your hand, it's a little bit different beast. So that's why when you when you see numbers now, even when they're measuring outfielders throwing some some outfielders the ball out of their hand, it's like 97 miles an hour. I'm like, in I've seen enough of those throws. It is a 97, but when it's out of the hand, it's at, but it, it creates good, good conversation for us all in social media and stuff and doing games now because wow, this guy's throwing 99 miles an hour, but out of the bullpen where you don't have to worry about, you know, letting it all out in, you know, for nine innings, you just go out there and let it out for one inning. It's a lot more fun because you feel, you feel like you're a boxer. You're out there and you're just letting it out. You're, you're, you're trying to go toe-to-toe or a hockey player when you're dropping the gloves. It's like, Hey, I'm going to get my <laughs> first shot in there and I'm going to do well. That's what I love. It was, it was so cool to be down in the bullpen and only and I, and I, I'm always was jealous of you guys and, and you, you in particular, when you can go out there and just go out and have the entire game in your hand, that last moment, because the starter, it's a buildup of one hopefully you'll be out there for ninth inning. But as a, but as a closer, especially that ninth inning is like, that's it that's like you're on the you're you're putting your tiger woods you got an eight foot putt to win the masters and you as soon as you let it roll you're already walking to the cup ready to pick it up and you're going home with the victory yeah so that's why i love the back closing
2: no it, i mean it, it was a blast and you know having guys like you starting the game and and if i did screw it up you know you were the first one to give me a pat on the shoulder going dude you know you're good you're all right everything's fine um and love that about you but I, I, we got you for maybe a couple more minutes. Um, tell me about your all-star experience experiences. Mm.
1: Well, the first one, I mean, 88, I was, you know, I remember calling my mom and dad said I made the team and then I had my aunt and uncle come up and it's in Cincinnati. I was so nervous. You know, Willie Mays is in the clubhouse and Lou Brock and, and, and all these, you know, George Bush senior was in, mm-hmm. in our clubhouse. And I, I didn't really enjoy it. I was so nervous. I remember going in the outfield during batting practice. I I, I sat up against the wall because I didn't want to look like a goofball trying to catch a fly ball. Like you know, I used to love shagging batting practice and diving for the ball, but I didn't want to look horrible at all. So I'm thinking, I everything went so fast in that game that I didn't enjoy it. But then the next year in '89, that was the, the heyday of Bo Jackson. I remember Bo knows everything was going crazy, but to sit back there, I'm sitting next to Nolan Ryan in the bullpen in Anaheim. And I'm sitting there going, I'm sure he was probably like, will you please stop asking me questions? Let you know, me asking about but how do you stay strong? How do you keep maintain your velocity, this and that? So he gave me a couple nuggets there that I kept from that game forward from his running habits to weightlifting, especially the lower part of his body, maintaining things to be strong all the way through. So there was experience and, and going back after that game, it was it was really really cool to be a part of that when Bo Jackson and Ronald Reagan's you know doing the first inning of that game with Vince Scully, and then I remember go baseball here's Bo Jackson you know Vince Scully saying after he hit home run welcome to baseball and then we're flying back to, we're playing the Yankees and the pilots are getting out of the cockpit and oh you notice I hate it flying so they're both asking you know <laughs> theoretically to Bo Jackson for autographs and finally I'm I'm in a full and I'm sweating I'm like. All right. By the way, who is flying this plane? I'm thinking airplane movie with that blow up, you know, pilot. I'm like, who is flying this plane? Somebody get back up there. I'm like, oh, don't worry about. It. We'll be all right. Worst case scenario, we'll, we'll crash it. We'll be you won't even know the difference. So I'm like, ah, oh, get back up in there. So then, both we landed, and, and, and the people are just running. I'm thinking, this is Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones. People were just swarming him. In, in the in the airport in New York, I'm thinking this is this is probably one of the coolest experiences ever. It wasn't an individual thing for me, but it was more of a just sit back and watching something that uh, right now we're seeing with Shohei Otani or even Mike Trout, where everywhere they go, that's where Bo. Everywhere Bo went, it was like it was the most unbelievable thing ever. So that was that was probably the coolest things. Other than the fact, meeting all the immortals of the game of baseball and yeah. all these guys that I absolutely hated now my teammates, which I to this day contend that I would I would have been better off never making an All-Star game because I went from hating all these guys to all of a sudden they're my friends, and you kind of lose an edge. It's like when your teammate goes to another organization. It's like I don't have that edge where hey, if I accidentally hit him, I don't feel bad. Now if I throw a ball inside and hit him, like I feel bad because he's a friend. So I I always like the edge, but I lost a lot of the edge when I'm, I'm facing you know, Don Mattingly or, or Kirby Puckett, those guys all of a sudden, they're my friends now. And I, I hated that because I didn't want to be, I didn't want any friends on the other team. I really didn't.
2: I love that. That is so old school. And it was, it was, um, I cannot think of who got me. I think it might've been Dwight Evans was over with us for one year. And you know, you, you play, you, did you play with Chili Davis?
1: Oh, yeah, I got traded for him. No, I played against him a million times. Yeah,
2: that, that's what got me confused because he was he was with us back when I came back in '97. Yeah, so I was going. Wait, were you with Chili? Well, Chili spent my whole rookie year trying to talk to me. You know, going when we were passing back and forth in BP, he would be trying to talk to me. And Dwight Evans is like grabbing me and dragging me into the dugout. I'm like going, "Yeah, hey, but that's Chili Davis." And he what he wants to talk to me. And he's like going. He wants to see if you're nice because, yeah. you know, just in case you hit him or you might hit him or you want to hit him. And I was like, ah, that's a good point. Yeah. Like, all right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I ignored Chili for the next couple of years, just completely walk away just in case I had to hit him and I wouldn't feel bad, yeah. but I, I love that mentality. I was, that was, that was it. That was us. It was, uh, that was baseball, man. Yeah. 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 You got
0: time for one more. Yeah. All right. It. So I can't let you go without, Bringing up that um, you know you, you come from a bygone era where guys a uh, lot more guys played for one team. You talked about Don Mattingly, Kirby Puckett, and and for the most part you did. You had that brief cup of a uh, cup of Joe with the Angels, but loyalty is a two way street. You have to find an organization that values you like you value them, so that when free agency comes, you can find an, a, a value that you agree on. What did it mean to you though to play the bulk of your career for one team in Kansas City and uh, be able to say? I was a royal for thirteen seasons.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, there was a couple of mentors. Paul Schilderf was a guy that wore that uniform forever. Uh, George Brett always told me, and "He goes, if you get a chance to wear just that one uniform your entire career, you've done something special." Mm. And when, when he, and he said that one early on in my career because, you, know, you know, even though the Royals were pretty consistent as far as keeping guys that they liked around, you know, for a long period of time, but you kept thinking you know, first you to make the big leagues, I'm hoping to make it one year, then you're two years. and then before long you're still on this, wearing that same uniform and thinking, you know George told me that if I get a chance to play my entire career with the Royals my and, and never put on a different uniform, that'll be the coolest thing ever. And I'll never forget because here I am I'm, I'm pitching in Minnesota as a matter of fact, it was July, say third or fourth. And Herc Robinson's our general manager, calls me up, I'm okay. pitching this day. And he goes, hey, would you approve a trade? I'm like, Herc, I- I'm pitching tonight. He goes, no, but would you approve a trade to the Texas Rangers? I'm like, because right, he talked to me before about maybe going to the Colorado Rockies. And I'm like, you know what? At that point, I was a 10-5 guy, so they couldn't trade right. me without my permission. So I'm like, all right, Herc. All right, you know what? It, it that, that point, at my you know, your feelings get hurt a little bit because I'm pitching that night. And my, my mindset is I got one job to do, and that's to win a game. And so I'm like, all right, we'll talk after the game. And lo and behold, that's when I get hit with a line drive by Paul Molitor in the first inning, mm-hmm. break my leg, uh, and then and then you know I get a call back. I guess the trade's off. But I'm, I'm pretty sure it's off.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. It's yeah, yeah.
1: But I, I, at that point, I'm like, you know what? I never thought. You know, there was times we won the World Series. We go, you know, we have our parade. We go see President Reagan. I come home literally. You know, my eyes are still bleeding from champagne getting squirted in your eyes for like 5,000 days in a row. <laughs> I look up on a TV and it says, I've been traded for Chili Davis when he's with the Giants. I'm like, wait a minute, how'd that happen? And you know, we just won the World Series and John Sherrill, so general manager, calls me right away. He goes, trust me, son, whenever you see your name in a trade rumor, that means you're not going. It's when you still don't hear your name. That's when you're getting traded. So, you know, lo and behold, 11 years later, I did get traded for Chili Davis, but uh, it was one of those weird things where I felt like, all right, I did everything I could. I, you know, went through all kinds of stuff, surgeries, and battle and ups and downs with the organization. I didn't want to go anywhere, but when I heard and it was asked if you would approve a trade, I was like, okay, maybe that's it's time for me to do that. And then, you know, lo and behold, that winter, when I just barely got out of my cast in my leg, I was in a cast for twelve weeks after that line drive by Molly. And I always joke with Molly. I said, "Dude, you're going for three thousand hits." You hit a line drive off my leg. It goes to first baseman Jose Offerman, and it's an out. I would have gladly given up a hip so you didn't break my leg. <laughs> so you know, and then then he said, "Hey, this is right before the World Series, and they can never announce trades during the playoffs and World Series. Is we're gonna how about approving a trade for the, to the Angels?" I'm like, you know what, my my oldest one was going into kindergarten. I was like, you know what, it was ever a time to give up on that dream of playing and wearing that one uniform your whole career. That was the time. So that's when I decided to approve that trade. And if I didn't do that, I won't, won't be doing what I'm doing right now. So I always believe there's a path you're on mm-hmm. for whatever reason, if I don't approve that trade to the angels, I'm not doing angels games right now. So maybe wow. it was one of those yeah. things where maybe it didn't work out on the field, but in the end it worked out what I'm doing right now. Wow.
2: Very good.
0: Anything else from you two G's. Uh Gooby, man. Uh,
2: Always, always love playing with you. One of my favorite teammates of of all time. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on board and just uh, talking baseball for an hour. I always love following you on Twitter. You're a good follow. Usually mildly entertaining and give us some uh, Angels (laughs) updates. But, brother, I appreciate it. Really do. And uh, be staying in touch. I know.
1: Brandon, by the way, when when, when Oli was with, especially with Baltimore there in in the dugout – I would I would laugh at our hitters. I go, dude, you guys got no chance. I'm sitting there laughing. He goes, all right, hey, we're gonna hit the bar quicker now. Holy's coming in there. We got no chance. We're not worried about this going extra innings. It's listening, I go that curveball I was like, Man, I'm glad I'm not a hitter.
2: I'm yeah. so
1: glad I'm not a hitter. I'm glad we're not in the national league. So eventually we're all gonna be DH. There's gonna be the, the universal DH, but at that point, I was so glad I didn't have to swing the back because I realized that in spring training games, how hard it is to hit. And that's the one thing I always teach my kids. Pitching-wise, okay. you, you don't realize how hard it is. Just ask Michael Jordan to hit
0: a baseball. It's the hardest thing ever. You got out while the getting was good, right? Right when Interleague was starting.
1: Yeah. yeah. But as usual, we all as pitchers think we're, we can hit a ball 500 feet anyhow. So I would have been swinging as hard as I could. I might not have <laughs> ever hit it, but I would have been swinging real hard.
0: Hey, there you go. Oh,
2: man. Well, You'll I, be your awesome
0: brother. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And I appreciate Always- the time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, That's all we have this week for that 90s baseball pod. Thanks again, Mark Gubiza. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark G-U-B-I-C-Z-A. For Greg Olson, this is Brandon Warren signing off saying thank you so much for checking out that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins. We'll catch you next week. Peace.